The text for the sermon this day is taken from Acts chapter 2, which I forgot to mark last night. Hold on a second. <laughs> and like I said, we're going to go through the entirety of this chapter. So grace, peace, and mercy to you from God our Father, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So whenever you watch a brand new episode of a TV show, one of the things they make sure to do is tell you, previously on Batman, they'll tell you what happened in the previous episodes. So similarly, we have to go backwards a little bit. What is leading up to Acts chapter 2? And so Jesus was arrested, he was crucified, he died, he was buried, and on the third day he rose from the dead. Then for, 50, for 40 days... He showed himself physically risen from the dead to almost 500 people. And at the end of that point, he ascended into heaven. Now before he ascended, he gave a command to his disciples that they were to be witnesses of him in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. And he also told them, this is recorded in Luke's Gospel, and Luke also wrote the book of Acts. In Luke's gospel, he said that you are to preach repentance and the forgiveness of sins beginning in Jerusalem. All right, so that's the back, back information. So I, a rare moment, I, if you happen to have a smartphone, this would be a good time to pull out Acts chapter 2 on your phone. And I mean Acts chapter 2, not what happened in the baseball games last night. So Acts chapter 2 is we're going to walk through that entire chapter. And the reason is, is because usually this sermon that Peter gives is broken up through a couple weeks and over several years. I think it would be good on ascension, on occasion, to go through the whole thing. So it's at, beginning at verse 1, it says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And so when we say tongues, we mean other languages. There's some that will make a big deal and say, oh, they're speaking angelic languages, heavenly languages that nobody understands. No, they're speaking other languages, and this will get clear, earthly languages, this will become clear in the next text, next um, paragraph. It says, now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language, or tongues. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, 
We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. So there's your note that they are speaking other languages. And this is unusual because you have people, to give you perspective, now, most of, I'm guessing most of you, your primary language is English, right? Okay. Now, let's say all of a sudden, you suddenly start speaking Swahili. I'm going to go out on a limb and say none of, I could be wrong, but most of you probably don't know Swahili. You never studied it. So let's say all of a sudden, you started speaking Swahili to a bunch of people who also speak Swahili, and you start speaking to them and saying, hey, I saw the Christ come to earth and I saw him, I witnessed his ministry, I, we saw him be crucified and we saw him physically risen from the dead in a language that you should not know. People, when they would hear you say words that you should not know because you don't know that language, naturally they're going to think you are what? Drunk. And that's what the crowd is thinking. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. So that's 9 a.m. And note, remember Jesus gave them the command to be witnesses where? Where are the first two locations? Jerusalem and Judea. They just said, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. Peter and the disciples already by the power, by the working of the Holy Spirit. And by the way, because there's all these other people, because Pentecost brings literally thousands upon thousands of people into Jerusalem. They're already speaking to the ends of the earth as well. But this is what was uttered through the, the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And if you cross-reference that with Joel, Lord is in all capital letters. And do you know what the Hebrew is when you see Lord in all caps? It is Yahweh. The name of God, which Peter is telling you that Jesus is Yahweh. And that prophecy in Joel, there was a few years ago when there was, I don't know if you remember the year where we had four blood moons. Well, there were some authors that made quite a fortune writing books about how the four blood moons were the signs of the end times. And as I think about it, I'm worried that he probably will write a book and say it was a sign for COVID. I wouldn't put it past them. But 
They use this passage as the go-to. See, there's a blood moon. This is a prophecy of an end-time thing. But we don't have to wonder when this prophecy is going to happen. Because Peter's telling you exactly when it happened. It happened right then and there. Because he quotes this in response to those who are claiming they're drunk. And so when they said he, they are drunk, he told them this prophecy to let them know that this prophecy is being fulfilled before your very eyes. So when did the sun turn dark? When Jesus was crucified. When did they see fire and smoke? When the Holy Spirit came. So all these things are happening right before their eyes. And the word prophesy does not necessarily mean to tell the future. To prophesy can simply be to tell someone else the word of God. So, for example, when we are reading from Ezekiel, which, by the way, our, the reason, our, the way our scripture readings are laid out, they're all working together usually. So, Ezekiel, when you read Ezekiel, you've got to figure out, okay, where is this being connected? Well, what you're reading in Ezekiel is beginning to be fulfilled in this hearing, too. So, when, in Ezekiel, when, they are, when he's being told to prophesy over these dry bones, he's being told to preach to speak God's word to these dry bones and by which they live. And so what they are witnessing in the sun, the men and women are preaching. They are telling God's word to those who are around them. They are evangelizing. So when you tell your friend or your neighbor or your coworker or whatever about the gospel, you are in the most basic sense of the word prophesy but i would not use that word because in modern day people are abusing that word verse 22 men of israel hear these words jesus of nazareth a man attested to you by god with mighty works and wonders and signs that god did through him in your midst as you yourselves know this jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Jumping down to verse 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus, God raised up, of that we all are witnesses." Here, there's that word, witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, 
This Jesus whom you crucified. Now, who just said all those words? Peter, right? Do you remember what Peter did 53 days earlier? When Jesus was on trial, a little, the servant girl came up to him, someone who had really no power or authority over him, came up and asked him, you're one, of the, you're one of his disciples, aren't you? You have the accent. I know that you're, you're one of them, aren't you? And what did Peter say? Nope, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't even know the man. And now that exact same Peter is standing before a crowd of literally thousands. And he is declaring that Jesus is the Christ. That he is both God and that he is Christ and Lord. That he was crucified and though he was died and he was buried, he is now risen from the dead. And he is convicting the crowd by saying that you crucified him. Why is he all of a sudden able to do this? Well, because they just received the Holy Spirit in a very special and unique way. Understand that the Holy Spirit was always at work. The Holy, in fact, if you read in Genesis 1, you can read that the Spirit was hovering over the waters. So the Holy Spirit has always been at work. It has always been working, doing what God needs to be done. And so the third person of the Trinity has always been there, but on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came to give forth a very special mission. The mission of preaching. The mission of spreading who the Christ is. What he has done. Proclaiming that Jesus is the Christ who died and has risen. This is why sometimes people will refer to it as the birthday of the church. Because that is when the New Testament church began its mission. But he also noticed, he said that you crucified him. He, how could he say this to the crowd? Because he doesn't know that every single one of them was at the trial of Jesus. And actually, very likely, most of them were not. The number of people who were at the trial of Jesus were maybe in the hundreds not in the thousands. And yet he's saying that you crucified him. Well, indeed, they did. They may not have been a part of the trial, but they are indeed sinners. See, they crucified him with their sin. And see, Peter knows that he could throw the same conviction right at himself. Because as I mentioned earlier, Peter was the one who denied he even knew who Jesus was. And when he was told that Jesus had risen from the dead, he did not believe it. He bears just as much guilt as that crowd. But why doesn't he say we crucified him? Well, it's the same reason why even as pastors... We need to limit how often we say we sinned against God. Because when we say we, 
It's true. Yes, the pastor's a sinner. But does not have the same punch as you sinned. When you say we, it's like, oh, we're just, it's just a bunch of us. We're just, you know, whatever. No one's perfect. That's the way we react to our sin when we just use the word we. When you hear the word you, the fun thing about the English language is the word you is simultaneously single and plural. And so I could say y'all and you the same time. You one person. But you, he could say those exact same words to you. you this one, the one, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. If you have any doubt as to whether or not you hold guilt over the crucifixion of Jesus, if you have any doubt as to whether or not you are a sinner, as to whether or not you've broken God's law, and whether or not it's just simple as, well, no one is perfect, and we want, it's not as simple as minimizing our sin, your sin. If you wonder, just pull out your catechism. Read, the ten, read specifically the part in the Ten Commandments. And if you've never read it, this is a really good homework assignment for you. Read Luther's large catechism. If you've never read it, do so. Technically, if you've had a kid, if you've had a son or daughter go through confirmation, you as a parent are supposed to have by now read Luther's large catechism. So that way you can also, you can instruct your child on the catechism. You can walk through with them properly the confirmation process. If you want to know where to find one, go to bookofconcord.org. There's free ones there. Or just go to cph.org and you can buy one there. Or you can just, or even better yet, get the whole Book of Concord. I don't know if any of you know this, but on the stone, there's a cornerstone right on our church. You ever seen that? It says St. Paul Lutheran Church and it gives the year for when this was built. It has three letters, UAC. Do you know what UAC stands for? Unaltered Augsburg Confession. So that's how important the Augsburg Confession is to this church. It's on the building. And that's also in this book. So I encourage you, go buy one of these. But that is, but you have crucified with your sins. Verse 37, when they heard this, the crowd, they were cut to the heart. Because that's what the law does. It cuts you to the heart. And said to Peter and to, to the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children who are over the age of 13. Oh, it does not say that. This promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So remember, the command was to preach repentance and the forgiveness of sins. What did he just tell them? Repent 
and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Peter, again, is doing exactly what Jesus commanded. Preaching, repentance, and forgiveness. Or the term that we Lutherans like to use, law and gospel. That's why when, you do your, when kids do their sermon reports, we ask them to identify law and gospel. So you can recognize preaching that follows God's command. So just so you crucify Jesus with your sins. And so when you are cut to the heart and you are led to repent of your sin, Jesus says to you, and again, this is why we say you and not we, because again, the you hits a harder punch. When you say you, when you confess, when you repent, you receive the grace of God. You receive forgiveness of sins. You receive the Holy Spirit. You receive him in baptism. And that is a promise for, yes, your children. In the first century, to be a child means you're under the age of 13. So anybody under the age of 13 is a child. And so the promise of baptism is for you and your children. You baptize children because by which their sins are forgiven because they are born in sin. They are baptized as infants because by it they receive the Holy Spirit. And this is exactly what the church is to be about. And with many other words, Peter bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Phrase he could say to ourselves, if you ever wonder how crooked our generation is, this might be a little controversial, but when you realize that the other, the larger Lutheran church body just appointed for, as their bishop a man, who, a biological male who identifies as a woman, you can see how crooked our generation is that the head of a church body is in open defiance against God's creation and design. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's what the scriptures are. These are the apostles' teaching. And the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, so, where's the breaking of bread? Lord's Supper. And the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So there you go. That is the sermon of Pentecost. And at the end of it, you, through it, you are hearing the life of the church. What the church is to be doing. To be preaching. Being witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. That is what they are doing. Well, they haven't gotten to Samaria yet, but that's going to come later in Acts. 
But that is what they are doing. They are being witnesses. They are preaching repentance and the forgiveness of sins. And that is what the, why this church exists. For that above all else. And the church, you who have received the Holy Spirit, you who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb, you are to come again and again to hear the apostles' teaching. You are to come to receive the breaking of the bread, the fellowship, to gather with one another. Do not forsake the gathering together of believers, the writer to the Hebrews says. You are to pray. You are to give to those in need. And by the way, when it talks about selling all their possessions, that is not communism. People love to use that one on communism. And they love to use some other passages and ads. The key difference is when they're selling and giving to those in need, the government isn't telling them to do it. They are doing it of their own will. There's a huge difference. Because the Caesar doesn't care whether or not they gave stuff away. That is, we are to give to those in need. And so, yes, that's what the church is to do. But ultimately, the goal of the church is to be here in the divine service, hearing the word, lifting up others in prayer, receiving a sacrament. There's a clever little saying that people like to say, and I say clever, kind of, quote, clever. They like to say, you know what, you don't, you don't need to go to church to be a Christian just as you don't need to go to McDonald's to become a big... If you go to McDonald's, you're not a Big Mac. And I, when I hear that, I'm like, well, you know, that's true. If you're in McDonald's, you're not a Big Mac. That is true. But you know what? If I want a Big Mac, where am I going to go? I'm going to go to McDonald's. If I go to anyone else, they're, gonna go, they're probably going to get sued by McDonald's for calling it a Big Mac. So if I want a Big Mac, that's where I go. If I want to find Christians, do you know where you go? To church. Because that's where Christians will be, around his word, around his sacrament. And if they are not around his word and not around his sacrament for long enough, they will not be Christians for very long. Because the faith will fade and die. That's what the church was from day one. Devoting themselves to the word, to the breaking of the bread, to the prayers to the offerings, giving to those in need. And so shall we, all our days on this earth, so that we, as we, you proclaim that word, others may hear the gospel, hear your witness, and they may call upon Jesus as Lord. And that is ultimately what the church is ultimately all about. Proclaiming, bearing witness to Jesus. That's why this alt pulpit is here, not there. Do you know why it's not in the center? There's a lot of churches, they put their preaching in the center. The reason it's a little off to the side is so that the altar and the cross is the center of focus. Notice when Peter preached, who was it all about? Did Peter say, listen to how awesome of a life I've had with Jesus? No, he didn't do that. He just said, this is Jesus. You know what it says on our pulpit right here? Sir, we would see Jesus. I don't know who put that. Do you know who put that at all? Okay, there you go. <laughs> this is all about Christ. That is what the church is for, to proclaim him, to bear witness to him. So do it.
until he returns. In Jesus' name, amen. The grace, peace, and mercy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, keep you in the one true faith, to life everlasting. Amen.